Father, we uh, are grateful that you are a God who speaks, that you're a God who uh, has communicated, does communicate, uh, that, that you have spoken to us in your word, and that you have spoken to us in your Son, Jesus. And fa Father, I pray as we uh, come to this time together this morning, where in just a few moments we will open up that word that you've given to us and hear it read and hear it preached. I pray that you would give us attentiveness to it. Uh, whether we came here uh, for the food that follows or uh, just upon an invitation, no matter why we have come, I pray that, that you would work in us and among us through your word, uh, that you would accomplish whatever you see fit, whatever is needed in each of our hearts and our lives. God, I pray as I have prayed all this week, I pray again this morning in the presence of my friends here and my church family, I, I pray that this morning would be a day where you awaken the spiritually dead, that you, you take some men and women, boys or girls who are here this morning uh, who uh, maybe have heard of Jesus but who have no regard for him, maybe who have been around the Bible but don't really value it or believe it even. I pray that this morning you would capture their hearts, that you would change them, that you would make them into new people. I pray for uh, those who have uh, been ensnared in sin. I pray that today would be a day that you free them from it. I pray for those that have been discouraged, that today would be a day that you bring encouragement to them. I pray for those who are suffering, that, that today would be a day that you renew hope and that you give comfort and consolation to them. And Father, I pray that you would bond us together as a church this morning. Uh, whether this is our first time here, whether we have been here for decades, I pray that we would continue to grow in love for each other and love for you. And so we pray now that you would do what we cannot, that you would accomplish what I cannot in the preaching of your word, and that you would apply your words to hearts and lives. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me get situated here. It's hard when we're outside. Um, but uh, if you want, if you have a copy of the Bible, if you want to go ahead and start opening it, trying to find the book of Hebrews, we're going to start there in just a few minutes. Uh, we're going to start at the very beginning of that book of the Bible. How we typically approach uh, preaching of the Word is as a church, we usually start at the beginning of a book of the Bible, and then we just make our way through it, slowly but surely, uh, trying to see what the original author meant when they wrote it and how it comes to bear on us. And so we're starting a new book of the Bible this morning, the book of of Hebrews. And so in a, in a few minutes, we will uh, start and just look at the first four verses of that wonderful book of the Bible together. I was going to know if you don't have a copy of the Bible, uh, that is okay. Uh, but we do on those little programs that you received, the folded white papers. I even put the text of today's scripture printed on there, uh, just underneath the list of songs and whatnot. Those four verses are right there, so you can look at it together. Because we always want anybody who's with us in worship to not just listen to a preacher talk about whatever he wants to talk about, but we always want to make sure we're hearing from God. And the best way to do that is make sure we actually read the Bible and see what it says. And so I would encourage you, whether it's on your own copy of the Bible or in that, uh, that booklet, the uh, program that you received, to make sure you're able to actually see what we read together uh, in a few moments. But I wanted to make a couple announcements before we get into this. Uh, and mostly I just want to refer you to that program and some of the things that are listed there that are upcoming. Uh, you can check those out yourself. I won't belabor all of them, but for example, like if you are in youth group or you have a son or daughter who's in youth group, those 7th through 12th graders, they're actually starting back up meeting tonight at 6 o'clock here at the church after a short break for summer. Uh, so just make note of that. You can come back uh, at 6 o'clock this evening. I wanted to note that we're not having Sunday school the next couple, or today or next Sunday with it being Labor Day. We're just going to have a worship service at the same time, but inside next Sunday at 10.15. We'd love to have all of you back for that. Uh, and then the last thing I wanted to note is we're starting something new. We're going to start it in September where once a month the pastors are going to do just what we're going to call coffee with the pastors. So anybody who's new-ish to the church who'd like uh, to get to know more about the church, to be able to ask questions, to hear about kind of what we value, what we believe. Uh, we're going to do a once a month on Sunday evening at 6, so that same time as youth group, to have coffee with the pastors here. We'll have dessert I uh, will uh, do that once a month. So if you are new to the church, I, I saw some of you for the very first time here this morning. If you'd like to come back for that a few Sundays from now in the evening, Sunday at 6, you don't need the RSVP. You can just show up and we will enjoy a time together of getting 
to know you. One other thing I wanted to note um, before we really begin in the sermon in today's text is I wanted to share with you um, a little glimpse of what I got to see this week that most of you did not. uh, That is a reminder to me of the good things that God is doing through our church even all over the world. Uh, So some of you know if you've been part of our church we sent out a team of three men uh, from our church to go to Papua New Guinea a few weeks ago. They've been visiting there uh, with missionaries that we sent out uh, to do a church plant in a tribe in Papua New Guinea. That team has been there for almost a decade or so, but this team we just sent of three guys have been there for a couple weeks. They should be home, Lord willing, tomorrow. Uh, but they sent a video to a few of us uh, this last week, and it, was, it made me cry watching it. And what it was, this is what the scene was, if you could imagine. So in that tribe, it's called the Pei tribe, there are people who have started, now that they've heard the gospel of Jesus in their own language, uh, that have actually started to place their faith in him. They've been born again, as best as we can tell. And one of them is named Philip. And the video that we received uh, was this. Uh, You can imagine this scene, and maybe someday we'll share it. I don't know. But uh, one of the brothers from our church who went, his name's Josh. He's one of our deacons. Um, It's him this brother Philip from the Pei tribe, and then in the middle is one of our missionaries that we sent. His name's Chris. Uh, and Josh, the deacon from our church, asked if he could pray for Philip before they got ready to start their long journey home. And they, they said yes, and you hear Josh praying for him uh, in English, of course, and the middle guy, uh, Chris, is translating it so Philip can hear him pray. And that was wonderful enough to see. Uh, I would have expected as much from Josh. Uh, But then what brought tears to my eyes is that Philip, the the man from the Pei tribe, uh, who's been a believer no more than a year, uh, uh, who doesn't have the luxury of all the background and things that we have, he asks in his language if he could pray for Josh. And and Josh, of course, said yes. And then you get to see on video, and I don't understand what he's saying other than until I hear Chris, the middle guy, translate it. But Philip starts praying for Josh. And it was a beautiful picture uh, for me, and I hope an encouragement to you to see that the church is growing all over the world, even through our church sending people, sending men and women to the far reaches of the earth with that good news of Jesus that we get to preach here, that we get to remember here and celebrate here has now been planted there and is growing there, and brothers and sisters are coming to the faith. Uh, the, the church is growing, and we can build each other up even across language barriers. It was just a beautiful thing for me to witness and I wanted to share that as an encouragement to you to continue in prayer uh, for those we have sent out continue thanking the Lord for his work all over the globe through our church and so uh, we'll try to share that get it in a version that would be shareable and maybe edited down uh, maybe some transcriptions things like that Um, but it was a wonderful encouragement to me Well, I hope that you have found the book of Hebrews. It's near the back of your Bible if you have a physical copy of it. Uh, But as we come to these first four verses, I wanted to to share about something that has just become so common in our lives, we probably just take it for granted. Uh, And it's this, that we have to get updates all the time. We have become such a technologically dependent people that if you think about all the devices you have, whether it's a phone or a computer, uh, things like that, there's always a need to update things, right? Uh, whether it's an app on your phone that has a new version that you need to update to, or, or maybe your computer's operating system has just gotten old and clunky and all the new programs that are coming out can't even work and you need to get a new operating system, or whether you just need a new physical actual device. How regularly are we getting new phones or new versions of the things that we have to communicate? And usually when we get those updates, sometimes we don't even notice. Sometimes they're just in the background. They happen. Uh, But even when we do, when we know that that update is coming, it usually goes really smooth, right? It usually just seamlessly flows. The, The update works fine. It maybe has new features. It has new look to it a little bit, but usually it goes well. But once in a while, it doesn't, right? Especially back in the day, this used to be uh, when you would get a new version of something, there would be bugs embedded in it that they didn't know as they were sending it out. Or, or even if it works fine, sometimes you just are so used to the old version of it 
that you just don't like the new version of it? Have any of you had that before? Uh, imagine like your grandpa wanting to just stick with his flip phone, right? Because he, he likes that, the comfortability of it, or a landline that grandma wants to keep instead of uh, the new cell phone. Uh, there's sometimes where we, there's a new version, an updated version of something that we just don't like or doesn't work. And in that moment, sometimes we make a decision of, do I really want to go back? Do I want to revert back to the old system? Do I want to stay with what I know, stay with what is tried and true? And sometimes we do, if we don't think it's worth the cost of going to the new one, if we don't like it or if it doesn't work. And I share that because the people who received this letter of the Bible uh, that we're about to start into today were in a situation not totally unlike that, but with much more important things at stake. Uh, God for centuries, uh, even millennia, had been communicating to his people. He had given them new information, new, uh, new ways to think, slowly unfolding it over time. Uh, but they had received an update of sorts. This was written to people who lived not long after Jesus had died and been raised and ascended back to heaven. And now these people who had heard for millennia from God in certain ways are given this new information, this new message, this new way of thinking that centers around Jesus, that, that says all of life needs to be oriented around him and trusting in him. And the temptation that they are going to face and that the person who wrote this letter speaks into, the temptation that they are going to face is that even after they've tried that new way of life, even after they've tried that new way of believing in Jesus and following after him, there's temptation to go back to the things that were tried and true, to go back to the law of Moses, to go back to the old covenant, to go back to the ways that they've inherited from their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. And these people that are receiving this letter, they were people who had heard about Jesus and they had started to believe in him. They had put their faith in him. They had started to orient their life around him. But then a few things started to happen that, that increased that temptation to want to go back. We know from la the, the later parts of this letter that we'll see weeks from now that these early Jewish Christians had started as followers of Jesus to experience mistreatment. They had started to experience harassment or persecution from others. And so there's a temptation, given that opposition, to say, you know, we don't need that. Like, we can go back to following Moses. We don't, we don't have to stay with Jesus, right? That's what they would think. Or maybe they started, as people who'd grown up Jewish, they, maybe they started to miss some of the tangible experiences that they grew up with. Uh, of getting to see the priest offer sacrifices, of getting to go to Jerusalem and celebrate these festivals, of, of getting to celebrate these holidays, these tangible things that they had been used to in life are now gone, and Jesus isn't there physically on earth with them. He's in heaven. The temptation would have been out of sight, out of mind, even our old rituals. We can't enjoy those anymore. What do we have left? Let's go back to getting some of those experiences together. And so the author of Hebrews writes into this situation. He, he writes into this situation to address people who were tempted to go back, tempted to revert back to the things that they had inherited, the, the law of Moses, and to, to abandon this faith in Jesus. And this is a matter of eternal significance. The writer of Hebrews knows there is so much at stake. If these brothers or sisters who put their faith in Jesus turn back to old ways that God communicated, he knows that their souls are in danger, and he is not willing to risk that. He's not willing to just let them fall back into those old ways. He wants to call them to persevere in the faith. And so we're going to start Hebrews 1. We're going to read just the first four verses here in just a second of Hebrews 1. I know this is a long entry ramp into it, but I want you to know a few things before we read this of, of the situation it is, the context of it, so we know what is happening here. So this letter that we call the letter to the Hebrews, as best as we can tell, was written to Hebrews, was written to Jewish people, uh, ethnically Jewish people, who had now put their faith in Jesus. Uh, they, they were following after Jesus. It seems that it was written within the first few decades after Jesus had gone back into heaven. But we don't know who wrote it. I'll just tell you that right now. It's very unusual in all of the, the scriptures and the New Testament in particular. It's very unusual in that we don't know who wrote it. It doesn't have the normal introduction like, 
Paul to the church at such and such, or Peter to the elect so and so. We don't have that. We don't know who wrote it. I could bore you with speculation about who wrote it. There's lots of theories about it, but I'll just say this. I don't think we're supposed to know who wrote it. Uh, If the Spirit wanted us to know, He would have told us it's not included in here. So we operate in ignorance on that front of who wrote it. But we do know that it was written to whoever wrote it. It was written to people that the author knew. Uh, If you look at the very last chapter of this letter, there's very personal greetings, like greet so-and-so. He knew these people he was writing to, but we don't even know who they are. We don't know where they live. We don't know where these people called home. All that we know is that they were ethnically Jewish, as best we can tell, and that they had started to follow after Jesus. Some people speculate that this is the written transcript of a sermon. It kind of feels like that. If you read through it, it feels very much like a sermon, like where there's uh, quotes of Old Testament passages, and they say, that means this for you all, uh, and that means this for us. It feels very uh, much like a sermon. But the theme of it all, which we're going to see even start today in these first four verses, the theme of this letter is, if I had to summarize it, it's the superiority of Christ. Uh, This author wanted the people who read this, and the Spirit would want us who read this now, to know the superiority of Jesus to all things and to all people, that there is nothing that holds a candle to him, that he is the one that we are to believe in, that we are to follow all the days of our life, and that we will worship even into eternity. That is his theme that he picks up. And so I want to begin reading this letter, the first four verses. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd encourage you to follow along or or read the the verses that are in the program that you received. Uh, This is going to be from the ESV. Uh, That's the the copy or the translation of the scriptures in English that we usually use. If you use something else, that's fine. Uh, But yours will probably sound somewhat similar to this. There may be some little words that are different. Um, But we're going to read these first four, or I'm going to read these first four verses from Hebrews chapter 1. So this author begins this letter, or maybe this written sermon, this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. This is not the typical beginning to a New Testament letter. Uh, When you read most New Testament letters, they begin with those greetings. They say who's writing it. They say who they are writing to. But there's none of that here, right? There's no, hello, how are you? Greet so-and-so, grace to you. There's none of that. Whoever wrote this just dives straight in the deep end of the pool. Like when you go to the pool, sometimes there's some people who like step into the, the ladder on the end or go down the steps, and there's some people who just cannonball right into the deep end. That's what he's doing, just jumping right in to the deep end, just plunging in with these grand statements about Jesus. And I want to point out one word in verse 4 that you're going to see come out through the book of Hebrews again and again and again if you stay with us in the weeks ahead. It's this word superior. Uh, He says here that Jesus has become as much superior to angels. And then there's other texts throughout this book where he says that Jesus is superior to this. He is better than that. He is he's a better version of this thing. And that is going to be our theme this morning is the superiority of Jesus, the superiority of Christ. Uh, He he begins this theme here and then he's going to unfold it through the rest of this book uh, in the week's Ahead. And so I want to point out two things at the beginning and the end of this short text today uh, that demonstrate the superiority of Jesus to anything and anyone that God has spoken through previously. So we're going to see the superiority of Jesus to the prophets and the superiority of Jesus to the angels. Okay? He starts this beginning of this letter by showing that Jesus is superior to the prophets. He contrasts in verse 1 and 2, he contrasts the ways God has spoken throughout much of time, uh, up through the point of the writing of this letter, how he's spoken through all these prophets, 
and then how he's spoken in now this unique way through the sending of his son, Jesus. Uh, and he, he, I so appreciate that the author of this letter is not trying to to diss or uh, disrespect all the prophets who've come before, right? He very much respects them. He wants the people who are reading this. God would want us to have an utmost respect for all the prophets who came before Jesus. God spoke through them, right? He says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That they, are, they gave the speech of God. So from people all the way back to Abraham had God interact with him, and Noah even before him, but then Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Elijah and David and Ezekiel and Daniel and all these people, God had spoken to his people through those prophets. God had given them messages. He had given them a recording of history. He had given them songs to sing. He had given them prophecies of the future. He had given them all of these messages. He communicated again and again and again to them. And this author of Hebrews wants us as recipients of this to have the utmost respect for those communications, to not devalue them, to not just chuck our Old Testament, but to believe it, to, to read it, to take it seriously. He, he values the ways that God has spoken in the past, but he's making a definitive point that even though God legitimately spoke through prophets of old, he has spoken in a qualitatively different way now in the sending of Jesus. That what he said to the prophets was partial, uh, it was incomplete, uh, that, that it was that many times in many ways, he says, but now God has spoke in these last days, in this new era, this final era, God has spoken to us in a new way, through a new person, and it's the person of his son, Jesus Christ. There's a quantum leap forward in the way that God communicated to his people when he sent Jesus into the earth. And when Jesus started to speak on behalf of God, as a qualitatively different type of communication. Some of you, if you've been part of our church, you know we went through the book of Deuteronomy last school year. And one of the things that was said near the very end of the book of Deuteronomy uh, was in Deuteronomy 34.10, whoever was writing this, after Moses died, this great prophet of God, after he had died, this later commentator said, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. There had been all these prophets who had spoken legitimately and truly, but there was this anticipation that God had given his people from the very beginning that someday there's going to be a prophet who far excels every prophet who's come before him, who is the final prophet, who's the final messenger of God. And what this author is saying is that final prophet is Jesus Christ. Like he is the one that all the prophets have led up to. They've been like a crumb trail that has led to the final prophet, the final spokesman of God, Jesus Christ. And so he wants them to see Jesus is superior to the prophets in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 4, at the very end of today's text, he's wanting them to see that Jesus is superior even to the angels. Uh, that if he was superior to all the human prophets who have come before him, he's also superior to angelic beings. And that may seem foreign to us. I would encourage you to come back next Sunday when we look at the rest of chapter 1. Uh, Dr. Matt Harmon, a New Testament professor from Grace, is going to be preaching next Sunday on Labor Day weekend where this author of Hebrews more fully explains in the rest of chapter 1 how Jesus is far better than any angels, uh, that, that he far surpasses them. But I'll just say for now, in case that seems weird for you, to say for him to say that Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. If that seems foreign to you, I'll just note for now, and then we can kind of put a pin in it, that the Hebrews, the Jewish Christians, had a very, very deep respect for angelic beings. Uh, they had a high respect, far higher, I think, than what we have uh, for angels. They believed even, you'll see later in Hebrews, they believed that God, back at Mount Sinai, when the law was given to Moses, that now they have read for centuries and centuries, they believed that angels were the ones that God gave that through, uh, that there were angels who were part of that process of giving the law to Moses. And so they knew whenever the Messiah finally came that he would be superior to all the humans who had come before him, they knew that he would be somehow greater than Abraham, that he'd be greater than Jacob, that he'd be greater than Moses, that he'd be greater than David. But it would have been strange for them to think that this Messiah could be even better than the angels. 
That would have been a, a strange thought to them. They thought of angels as being above human beings uh, and being superior in many ways to human beings. But he says here in verse 4 that Jesus has become superior, even much superior to angels. And he says that he has inherited a name more excellent than theirs. Uh, I think that that name he's talking about isn't the name Jesus or even the name Christ, but it's that name that he is the Son of God. Uh, there have been, angels are like messengers of God who do things on behalf of God, but he's saying Jesus is not just a messenger. He's not just a, a herald for God. He is the Son of God. He, he surpasses angels in every possible way. And so in this text, it's kind of booked in, book ended. He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels. And then in the middle, this is what I want to spend the rest of us, our time looking at. He gives seven statements. And I wish I had like hours to go through this, but I know it is hot. Uh, I know you're waiting for food and things. So we'll have to briefly touch on some of these things. But from verse 2 down through verse 3, uh, he gives these seven statements about Jesus that demonstrate his glory, that show tremendous things about Jesus that are the reason he can actually say he's superior to the prophets, uh, that he's superior to the angels. He gives evidence, he gives reasons that he can say that to kind of ground his claim that Jesus is better, that Jesus is superior to anyone and anything in this world. And so I want to walk through these seven statements. They'll be brief, uh, but walk through these seven things, these seven statements that the author makes about Jesus, the glories of Jesus. And I, I hope that even if you zoned out when I read these verses a little bit ago, I really want to encourage you to try to concentrate even through the hot, even through the sweat, uh, things like that. Listen to these statements that we're about to walk through about the glories of Jesus because I have been praying for you, I've been praying for me, that your heart would be captured by how amazing Jesus is. Uh, the, we can read these things and they just kind of go in one ear and out the other or in one eyeball and out the other. Uh, we can just read these things and totally miss the grandness of what he is saying is true about Jesus. Christ. But I want, as best as I can, to compel us to not miss it, to not miss the grandness of these statements about Jesus. And so I want to categorize these seven things into kind of like three buckets, three categories, these statements that he makes. Uh, and the first bucket uh, that I'm going to put three of these statements in is the glories of Jesus and how he relates to God the Father, like how he relates to the heavenly Father. And the, the first one that I want to point out to you is that he's, he, this may sound strange to us, but that he radiates the Father's glory. That he radiates the Father's glory. You can look at that in verse, the very beginning of verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. That is a quite a stunning statement. If, if the glory of God is his greatness, his impressiveness, his otherness to us, this author is saying Jesus is the radiance of that. He, he is the means by which we feel that, that we know that, that we see that, right? Like the sun that's up in the, up in the sky to us is very, very far away from us, right? but we still feel it, like you're feeling the heat of it right now. That's why I have a towel and I have to, to pat down my forehead and whatnot. We feel the radiance of it, even though it is far from us. Uh, this image of him being the radiance of the glory of God is kind of comparable between the sun and its beams, its rays. If, you, if we think of God the Father as the sun, S-U-N, and we think of God the Son, Jesus, as the beams. It's like he is the radiance of the glory of God. He shows us what God the Father is like. They, they are different. They're distinct from each other. But they are still one and the same being. They are, they are part of the same Godhead. And Jesus radiates the glory of God to us. When we see Jesus, when we hear from Jesus, we see God the Father. We hear God the Father. He radiates the glory of God which is quite the statement. But the second statement I want to put in this bucket of how he relates to the God the Father is that he shares the Father's nature, that he shares that same divine, that same God nature with Jesus. The very next thing he says in verse 3, he says that he is the exact imprint of his nature. 
Uh, this is pulling on this image that we are still probably can uh, be familiar with today of coins, like where they have the image of a, a person on it, a figurehead from our nation or other countries do the same where they, they impress the image of a person onto money. Uh, that is similar to what is being stated here, that he is the exact imprint of his nature. That when we think of the godness of God, the godness of God the Father, he is saying Jesus has that exact same imprint. He has that exact same nature. Even though he's become a human being now, he has continued to be God. He and he's not just an imprint, he is the exact imprint. Right? I, I was talking with my son a little bit about this. I, when you're online, and you, if you're on social media, you may notice this sometimes, that if there's a really popular picture that goes around or a meme or something, when it gets really popular and people have started slowly over weeks or months, this process happens where they download it to their computer, and then they upload it back, and then somebody downloads that and uploads it, and then they download it and upload it. It slowly becomes more and more pixelated, like maybe the original one was like really sharp and crisp, but these copies become kind of distorted. And you still know what it is, but you can tell it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Not so with Jesus and his godness. He is saying he is the exact imprint of God the Father's nature. He shares 100% in the godness of God, the divinity of God. So he, he radiates God the Father's glory. He shares God the Father's nature. And the last thing to put in this bucket of how he relates to the Father is that he sits, even right now, he sits at God the Father's right hand. That's what he says, right, in verse 3. At the end of verse 3, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Presently, I want you to truly consider this. Presently, at this very moment, Jesus Christ, the resurrected person, Jesus, is sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. That is true right now. That, that was true yesterday. It was true a thousand years ago. It will be true a thousand years from now if he stays in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't just go into hiding or he didn't just disappear. He ascended. People watched him go back into the heavens. And he is presently, right now, physical body at the right hand of God the Father. And what that means, this is good news for us, is that he is secure that he is unthreatened, that he has no rivals, there are no threats to him. He is ruling over the entire universe as king. And what we're going to see through the book of Hebrews, which I so appreciate, is there, the author is going to again and again not just remind us of what Jesus did for us in the past at the cross, and not just point us to the future for how he's going to return someday, but more than any other book in the New Testament, he's going to remind us of what Jesus is doing right now. That Jesus didn't just operate in the past, and he's not just going to do things in the future, but he sits right now at the right hand of God the Father, ruling over all things, uh, superintending all things. So in relation to the Father, that bucket, he radiates the Father's glory, he shares the Father's nature, and he sits at the Father's right hand. But this next bucket that will have three in it also is you see the glories of Jesus and how he relates to the world, how he relates to the universe. And these are hard for me to express the wonder and the glories of these things, okay? The first thing to put in this bucket from this text is that as we think of how Jesus relates to the world is that Jesus created the world. Jesus is the one through whom God the Father created the world. Look at verse 2, the end of verse 2. He's making these statements about Jesus, and then he says, through whom also he created the world. The he in that sentence is God the Father, and he's saying that God the Father created the world through Jesus, through God the Son. That is hard for us to fathom because often we think of Jesus' existence beginning at Christmas or at beginning at his conception or at his birth. Jesus' existence did not begin then. In fact, Jesus has no beginning. Like he has always existed. If God the Father created the world through him, that means he existed before the world, right? He, he is not a created being. He is part of the Trinity. He has always existed and this author is saying, God the Father created the world through 
Jesus. He doesn't give us a description of what that means scientifically or anything, but he is saying God the Father created the world through Jesus. And this author is saying that about a person who walked on the earth not 40 years prior to this, right? Who lived and breathed and ate meals and sang songs and and would go out fishing and things like that. He's saying that Jesus, who some people who even would have heard this may have met him while he was on the earth. He's saying that Jesus created the world. That is a stunning statement, right? It's not just that Jesus is some great religious teacher who created a new religion or who created a a new way of thinking or anything like that. He's saying Jesus created the universe. Jesus created the world. He is not just some teacher to take lightly and who we can just chuck. He is the creator of this universe. The second thing in this bucket, this, this is a glorious statement, is he says not just that Jesus created the world, but that he has inherited the world. That's the second thing, is that Jesus has inherited the world. Look at verse 2, the beginning of it. It says, In these last days that God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Do you hear that? The heir of all things. We know about inheritances. We, we, some of us have inherited things from our parents, from our grandparents. We, maybe you have inherited money. Maybe you have inherited a house. Maybe you've inherited a property. Maybe you have inherited a receding hairline. I don't know. Like you have inherited all sorts of things. Maybe. Maybe you haven't received. Maybe you come from a family that, that doesn't have much to pass on financially. Uh, but we, many of us have inherited something from our parents. We have been given something, been entrusted with something by them. Jesus, from his heavenly Father, has inherited all things. Do you hear that? Everything, all things, now belong to Jesus. As the one who has obeyed his heavenly Father and the one who's been raised from the dead, God the Father hasn't just entrusted to him a certain ethnic group or a planet or gold or riches or things like that. He has given him everything. Everything has been entrusted to Jesus as part of his inheritance. That includes, I was just thinking through a list of these things. His inheritance includes angels and animals. It includes ancient people and modern people. It includes men and it includes women. It includes kings, it includes paupers, it includes people of all ethnicities. Think Canadians, Colombians, every hemisphere, every time, every age. His inheritance includes the galaxies and it includes the atoms that, that make up our universe. Everything has become part of the inheritance that God the Father has given to Jesus. So everything belongs to him. Like, he has authority over everything and everyone in this universe. He is able to do, he is given the authority to do what he sees fit, to govern how he sees fit. And what that means for us is we are part of that all things. And we must listen to him. That's what this author is trying to say. He is the one we must listen to. We belong to him. All of creation belongs to him. We must not live how we see fit. We listen to him. We do what he says. We believe what he calls us to believe. So he has inherited all things, which is a stunning statement. But then if that's not stunning enough, the last thing that I would put in this bucket of how he relates to the world is not just that he created it, not just that he's inherited it, but that he upholds it. This is probably the wildest one to think about. If you look at verse 3, the middle of verse 3, speaking of Jesus, the author says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you hear that? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Some of us, when we read that, we may think of that that Greek myth of Atlas holding up the earth on his back or, or bearing under the weight of the earth as a judgment upon him. That is not the image that, that this author is trying to say. When he says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, he's not imagining like Jesus under somehow outside of the universe, like holding it up physically. He's saying that he sustains it. 
Like that he keeps it going, that he keeps everything together. He is the one that keeps things from falling apart or even ceasing to exist. He's the one that keeps things going, right? If he is the one who upholds the universe, that sustains our very existence, that that holds everything together, what foolishness is it then for us as these small creatures on this small planet to think we can live in opposition to him? The one who we, our very existence depends upon, the one who upholds, that keeps this earth spinning, that keeps this earth in orbit, that keeps us, our hearts beating, the one who sustains, upholds everything, how could we have the pride and the audacity to say, I'm rejecting him, I'm walking away from him, I don't need to listen to him. You very much do need to listen to him. God calls you to listen to him. He created the world. He's inherited the world. He upholds the world. So we ought to listen to him, listen to Jesus. So I've covered six of the seven things, but I've saved what I consider the best one of these seven statements for last, because one of these seven statements is not like the other six. Uh, The other six, the ones I've talked about so far, of him radiating God's glory and sharing his nature and all these things, those are talking about the, the bigness, the grandness, the, the impressiveness of Jesus, how he upholds everything, he created everything. But inserted into this list of seven things is one where we see the humility of Jesus, where we see his willingness to lower himself, where we see his willingness even to sacrifice himself. And this last bucket that I'm just going to put the last one into is not how he relates to the Father or how he relates to the world, but how he relates to to us. And the phrase I want you to see, it's in verse 3. It's near the end of verse 3. It says, after making purification for sins. That's when he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So he made purification for sins. This is incredible news for us, is that Jesus died to make purification for sins. It's not just that Jesus created the world and rules over the world as some cold dictator who's distant from us, but Jesus, the one who created the world, the one who shares the glory of God, the nature of God, he became a human being. He became one of us when he entered into the womb of Mary, and he lived a life for three-plus decades of perfect obedience to God the Father. We deserve curse. We deserve judgment for our sin. We have rebelled against the Heavenly Father. Jesus obeyed him and deserved blessing. Jesus deserved reward. Jesus deserved nothing but the favor of God. Yet he made purification for sins not for his own sins. Those didn't even exist. He has made purification for our sins, for mine and for yours, because we have, we have incurred guilt. We have rebelled against God in countless ways, ways we don't even fully realize. We have rejected God. We've defied him. We've disobeyed God. Yet Jesus, when he went to the cross outside Jerusalem that Friday, long, long ago, Jesus took the sins of others upon himself. He allowed our sins, my sins, to be counted to himself, to be counted to his record. And he was crushed by God the Father, the one he shares a nature with, the one whose glory he radiates. At the cross, Jesus was crushed by him. At the cross, Jesus was punished by him. And as Jesus took the punishment for our sin... He made a way that we might be made pure. Us who were stained with sin, who had guilt, who had judgment upon us, our sin can be transferred to Jesus, removed from our record. We can be purified of the sins that are on our record, and they can be counted to Jesus and fully dealt with at the cross. Full purification made for sins. Jesus bore every ounce of the judgment of God that should be coming down upon us. And this, of these seven, every single one of these statements is glorious and impressive to me, but this one is the most glorious to me, that Jesus made purification for sins. The the others show his greatness and grandeur, but this shows it in a unique way. And it's at the bloody cross, the the cross that can seem so disgusting to many, is where we see the highest glory of Jesus. 
that the one who deserved the favor of the Father suffered his judgment. The one who had no sins on his record, let ours be counted to him so that we might be made clean, that we might be forgiven, that we might be received to the Father. That, more than any of these other six, show not just the grandness of Jesus, but the humility of Jesus. They show the unique love that Jesus has even for sinners like us. That he doesn't just demand coldly that we worship him and be impressed by him, but he came and gave his very life for us, that we might be brought near to God. He has made purification for sins. That Jesus, the one who radiates the glory of God and shares God's nature and, and does all of these things, this author is trying to impress upon the readers and impress upon us, God has spoken to us through him. Not just through a Moses, through a David, through everybody that preceded, but God has now finally, definitively spoken to us through Jesus. And what Jesus spoke when he was on this planet, what Jesus continues to speak even from heaven through his word, what he speaks is not just a law for us to follow, but he speaks a gospel for us to believe. A, a message of good news to us is what Jesus spoke. That this good news of God's favor to all who would turn from their sins and place their trust in him. That is the message that Jesus spoke again and again and that he spoke at the cross and that he spoke in his resurrection, that he speaks now even from heaven. As he speaks to us and says, not just do this for me, don't do that for me, but he says, come to me in repentance and faith. Turn from your sin. Like I have made purification for your sin. Turn from those sins. Place your trust in me and what I did for you at the cross. And he invites us to come to him, to come to the Heavenly Father. And those are the only conditions upon it, is that we turn from our sin and place our trust in him. And when we do, he promises eternal life. He promises forgiveness of sin. He promises resurrection. He promises to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit to live with, within us. He gives us this good news of God's favor. He doesn't just speak law. He speaks gospel. He speaks good news to us. And if there are some of you today who have never listened to that voice of Jesus, you've never heard his invitation to come back to the Father through him, I, on behalf of Jesus, want to extend that message to you today that he is glad to receive you. If you will turn from your sin, if you will place your trust in him, Jesus is glad to receive you, the ruler of the universe, your creator, the one who has inherited all things. He takes interest in you, and he is glad to receive you back today. I would love to talk to you about that. If you came with someone, I know they would love to talk to you about that, of, of how to return to him, of what that can mean for you. But for all of us, I want us to think just for a moment, if we are called to listen to this Son of God, listen to Jesus, I want us to contemplate at least for just a moment, what other voices are we listening to other than his? There are rival voices that we turn to, that we turn to for guidance about how to live, that we turn to for a, a securing of our identity, that we turn to to try to understand this world. We may turn to uh, the world and its enticements and, and the siren call of, of riches and, and fame and things like that, and we may orient our life around those voices. We may orient our, our life around the voice of a parent or a boyfriend or girlfriend or of a boss or of a musician or a celebrity, someone that we are impressed by, we may orient our life around them and what they ask of us and who they tell us we are. Some of us, rather than listening to Christ, listening to his voice, whether we realize or not, we are listening to the voice of Satan. We are listening to his accusations. We are listening to the shame that he heaps upon us, the guilt and the condemnation that he heaps upon us. And God would want us to say, stop listening to him, listen to Christ, listen to my son. Some of us, we listen to the law of God more than we listen to the Son of God. We, we just think, what do I need to do? And we just heap all these rules and burdens upon ourselves as if we can gain the favor of God. And instead of listening to the law, we need to hear from Jesus, not just a message to do, 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 but a message from Jesus to say, it is done. Like I have done the work to bring you back to God. Rest in what I have done for you. Some of us need to listen again to the gospel and not merely to the law of God. Some of us, when we think of who we listen to, we are really just listening to ourself. We, when we think about our life and how to live and what to believe, instead of listening to God, if we're honest, we just start listening to our gut. 
We start just listening to our heart. We just start listening to our own intuition. Those can and do misguide you. But the voice of God through Jesus never will. We must listen to him above all. And we must keep listening to him. There are some, I would imagine, in, in our gathering today, who as you think back upon your life, you can remember a time where you used to listen to the voice of Christ, where you used to listen to him, you used to identify uh, with him and, and follow the things that he says, but in recent days, in these last days of your life, you have ceased to listen to him, you have shelved him, you have set him aside in your life. But I want to challenge you and encourage you today, Jesus is still speaking. Like, and you are still to listen to him. It's not just a momentary thing you decide to do to say, yep, I believe in Jesus. I, I want to get out of hell, free card, and then I can just live my life how I want. This world belongs to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. Listening to him is not for some phase of life. It is for all of life. And I want to encourage you to return to him today. Return to listening to him. In closing, I just thought uh, I would share this. I thought this was comical last night. I, I don't know how a lot of preachers are, but I usually don't finish writing out my notes uh, for my sermon until fairly late on Saturday, sometimes even into Sunday morning. Uh, but I, I type out notes on Microsoft Word, and I couldn't help but smile because I was no more than like 30 seconds from hitting save and closing it. And this little banner popped out at the, the top of Microsoft Word, and I, I typed what it said. It said, like this alert, we've made some fixes and improvements to complete the process the app needs to restart. And I just kind of laughed at myself because I knew how I was going to start today's sermon saying how uh, we often have to update and update and update and update and get new information and new apps and new devices and new this and new that to keep up with the world, whether it's Microsoft Word or the newest iPhone or whatever. But it just made me smile when I saw that little taste of the need to update again pop up in front of me that when it comes to the way that God speaks to us and his communication to us, he has spoken once and for all through his son Jesus. There is no update thing that's going to ever pop up spiritually for us where there's some new person we need to listen to, some new revelation of God that we need to believe, some new prophet to listen to in the same way that we listen to Christ. He has spoken once and for all through his son. And that is good news for us. I was thinking of the baptism of Jesus. Some of you have read about the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized in the water and came back up from the water, uh, the, the gospel writers record for us that a voice came from heaven. And, and what that voice said of God the Father was, This is my Son. Listen to Him. If I could summarize the message of Hebrews, if I could message, uh, summarize the message of these first four verses of Hebrews, I could do no better than those very words of God the Father, that Jesus Christ is his son. Listen to him. I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to sing one last song with a, a doxology tagged on to it. Uh, so I'd encourage you to, to grab those lyric sheets again. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, then we'll sing. Then I'll give some directions about food and drink and the, the festivities to follow. But let's pray together. Let's not miss the power of this word. Let's not let it just pass by us uh, without seeking to grab onto it and really believe it. So let's pray and then we'll sing together. Father in heaven, God, I, I pray that this text would resonate in our hearts. I pray that it would, would get into our hearts and just echo around in there again and again today and this week and the rest of our time in Hebrews, the rest of our lives. May this text be ingrained in us. I pray that we would be impressed with your son Jesus, that we would never look to him as just an option among many of teachers, as just one way among many possible ways to you, as one prophet among many to listen to. But may we be struck by his greatness. May we remember the glories of him, that he's better than the prophets, that he's better than the angels, that, that he is one with you, that he radiates your glory, that he sits at your right hand, that he created the world, that he's inherited the world, that he upholds the world. And in light of all that, may the glory that he has made purification for our 
sins. May that strike us. May that move us. May that humble us. May that change us as your people again and again and again and again. And may we keep listening to him, whether this is day one or day 10,000. May we continue to listen to your son, Jesus. And I pray all these things in his name.